Professor John Potts is a scholar of diverse, seemingly diverse subjects, the Victorians and science fiction, present education. Literature is the unifying theme. Professor Plotz is editor of an online magazine called B-Sides, celebrating great books um, that time forgot is its motto. He hosts a podcast, Recall This Book, and he's keen, I think, to make literature urgent and relevant to the crises of the moment. He's giving the University of Otago's annual Dalziel Lecture on August the 25th. And he joins me now. Kia ora, good morning. Hey, uh, good morning, Kim. You've, uh, been so to nice New Zealand to you. You've been to New Zealand before, haven't you? I have, courtesy what were you of... Doing? Uh, a, I I came to um, to Otago to give a talk and uh, and I'm back. <laughs> they know? obviously they um, obviously thought you were all right. Uh, yeah, well, I I love them. I kept pestering them. They let me <laughs> teach a fantasy class online, so that that was a that was a fantastic experience. So, um, yeah. Science fiction, fantasy, speculative fiction is yeah. one of your areas of expertise, and indeed, you teach this. What is yes. it that draws you to that? Um, I think it's the way in which fantasy, especially writers that I love, like Ursula Le Guin or Kurt Vonnegut, uh, that they help you see the made-upness of the world we live in, you know, our everyday world. So um, one of the things I love about uh, Ursula Le Guin is that she writes about dragons and you know the world of earthsea wizard you know uh, child wizards and wizardry schools but she's also helping you to see the sorts of um spells and magic we have in everyday life the way that um we, you know we tell ourselves stories to get through the day uh she has this wonderful line she says we live in capitalism its logic seems inescapable but so did the divine right of kings and uh, so i think that's her her way in is to help, you know, is to help her readers understand, yes, my stories are made up, but um, there's a lot of made up stories around you. What do you make of the huge Harry Potter success? Mm. Mm. Not um, a lot by the sounds of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I make a lot of it. I think it's really an interesting um, phenomenon. I think one thing about it is that they're... Um, children's books or young adult books that go on resonating for adult readers. So I've met a lot of uh, 20 and 30 and 40 year olds who love them the same way that you expect, um, you know, teenagers to love, um, you know, things, some, something like the Narnia books. Um, so I think what I make out of them is that they're both about, um, you know, make believe and escaping to a fantasy world, but they also have some of the reassuring um, sort of 19th century qualities of like the, the schoolboy novel or the schoolgirl novel. You know, there's a little bit of Mallory Towers in them or uh, Tom Brown's school days. Um, what do you make of them? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think they're probably quite a jolly good thing. I wondered whether you yeah. thought they were Ursula Le Guin dumbed down. Um, 
Yeah, I think on a bad day, that is what I would say. I mean, I do think, you know, Le Guin gets credit for the idea of a wizard school, but her wizard school is so, to me, so much richer and more complicated. There's this whole issue of like, why did the wizard school for centuries only admit men? And what would it take for it to admit women? So that gets played out in her Ursi books. And, um, you know, I like those, I like the adult way that she thinks through those problems, even though they're problems that, you know, in her book, 13-year-olds or 17-year-olds are experiencing. Maybe we just can't, maybe we just can't deal with that level of complexity now. Mm. I mean, one thing I love about um, Le Guin is that I think that her stories do come back. So, for example, she wrote this novel called The Left Hand of Darkness about a world in which people you know, more or less decide what their gender will be on a monthly basis. They cycle through being male or female or having no gender at all. And uh, it's a book that really speaks, I think, to the discussions we're having now about being non-binary or being trans and just, you know, the way that it's invented all the way down, you know, that heterosexuality uh, is as made up as homosexuality or as any other form of uh, gender or sex identity. And that's a book from 1972. So, um, you know, I love that people are willing to pull that off the, um, you know, it's a deep cut. They're willing to pull it from the dusty back (laughs) shelves and and bring it to life again. You've been commissioned to write a book about a book that's had a significant influence on your life. And indeed, you've chosen A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. Have you read it at various times throughout your life? Yeah, I have. Um, There's a wonderful book called uh, Reading Middlemarch, uh, in which uh, Rebecca Mead describes going back to Middlemarch several times, which is something I've done also. But like her, I had this experience of thinking that it, you know, it meant one set of things to me when I was young. And then when I came back to it older, it, you know, it kind of made me cry again, but at different places. I don't know if that does that experience resonate with you at all. Yeah, the, yeah. the sort of return, the return. Yeah, is that the sign of a truly good book that it can um, transform itself? Yeah, I think so. Um, Roland Barth uh, has a uh, he has a book called Pleasures of the Text, and he says the joy something like the joy of reading Proust. Yes, you skip, but you always skip different pages each time you read it. So um, yeah, the book yeah the book rotates for you. And uh, you see something you didn't see before. And and I think that's incredible. Like, how does an artwork do that? I mean, it's the same pieces of paper. It's the same black ink on the page. But you're generating a completely different response to it. Different I mean, times the, through. the implication is that every artwork needs an audience in order to exist properly. Yeah. And I think that's something Le Guin is really thinks about a lot. She has this wonderful translation of the Tao Te Ching in which she translates one of the verses in it um, by saying that um, she basically compares a work of art to a pot or to an empty room. And she says that a pot and a room are where they are not. I never really thought about it that way, but that the room exists in the empty space that the walls create and the pot exists not so much in the, in the ceramic that makes the ends, but I mean, that makes its boundaries, but in the, the space that it holds, you know, that you can put water into it, you know, a pot full of water. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So so yeah, I think the, I'm sorry, carry on. 
Oh, no, I just think, just to your point about the great work of art, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that makes artists or writers especially great at what they do is their awareness that the existence of their book doesn't end at the moment that they finish the last word and send it out into the world. That's kind of just the end of the beginning, you know, that that they're aware that the meaning of the book is in the people who read it and respond to it. Yeah, that must be quite scary, I imagine. You've written mm. books. Mm-hmm. Have you found yeah. that? Um, well, you know, I guess I would say the nice thing about being an academic is that, you know, you can count on your friends to read your books and you can count on a few other people. But, you know, when you're in the four digits and five digits, you don't you don't brood on it too much. But I think people like George Eliot really thought about it, you know, like coming alive out there. Jane Austen, you can tell that she's um, turning in her mind that problem of what it means to have a life beyond just the, the, the small ivory tablet where you're scratching your words. Was she talking about a life beyond her physical position or a life beyond her temporal position? Oh, that's such a great question. I think that I think Austin had it both ways. I think she really understood herself as an artist. I mean, if you think about how she talks about romantic poetry and sort of makes fun of the way that some of her characters, um, you know, forget the temporal dimension of the poem. I think she was well aware that if a work of art succeeded, it was gonna, you know, it, you would predecease it, basically. Yeah. And and she was also aware, I mean, this is the sort of, it seems like such a simple point about gender, but, you know, she was writing about a world in which it seemed that the only thing women had to do was to, you know, get married and breed or fail to do so. And she was busy imagining alternatives to that. It is a truth universally acknowledged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you yeah. do... Uh, an online magazine, you edit an online magazine called B-Sides, as I said, celebrating the books that time forgot, or the great books that time forgot. If they were great, why do you think time forgot them? Oh, that's such a wonderful question. Um, I should say, what I edit is only a feature inside Public Books is the big journal, and right. I was so glad they gave me they gave me the B-Sides. Though I, I a little bit worry that calling it B-Sides, you know, now that we live in a world without records, let alone 45 <laughs> records, I'm a little bit worried that I have to explain it to every 18-year-old I meet. But yeah, um, so maybe that's a good example of how things get forgotten. Um, I think um, there's a great article by a guy named Franco Moretti, Slaughterhouse of Literature, in which he talks about um, the great unread. And actually, it's a phrase from a friend of mine, Margaret Cohen. But the idea of the great unread is just that things fall out of favor, but we don't really know why they fall out of favor. So I'll give you an example from New Zealand, which is um, Alex Calder from Auckland wrote a B-side um, for the for the journal um, called, uh, based on Janet Frame's Living in the Mania Toto. Um, and I don't know if you're a Janet Frame fan, but I'm- We're all Janet Frame fans in oh, New good. Zealand. Well, okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah. So she's not a news B-side in New Zealand. That's, well, see, that's one reason I love coming to your country. That's fantastic. Um, but she's, you know, it's a hard sell. Janet Frame in America is a hard sell, even though often she's writing about America. Living in the Maniatoto is partly set in San Francisco. But, um, but why did it fall? You know, maybe because it had a New Zealand publisher. You know, I don't know. You know, there, I feel like there's so many contingent reasons. Um, and then we look backward along the line of the canon and we assume that things are, um, you know, uh, good simply because they happen to be famous. 
um, or we think rather we think that they're um, famous because they're good. Yeah. But sometimes we just think of them as good because they are famous. Right. Um, Difference between famous and celebrated, I suppose. Yes. So, yeah. obviously, I'm going to ask you what book you think is un- <laughs> unjustifiably celebrated. Um, well, I just wrote. I, the first B-side that I wrote was for a novel called Butcher's Crossing. And I just discovered that it's now going to be a Nicolas Gage movie, which makes me so excited. Because um, whether you love Nicolas Gage or hate him. You he, mean Nicolas no, Cage or Gage? Cage. Nicolas Cage. Cage. I said Gage. I don't know why. Cage. Thank you. Cage. Can't be Nicholas doing Cage. him. Cannot be doing no. that man. No. Terrible. Don't know why. Cage. Anyway. With a C. Who wrote that book? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John Williams. And uh, he wrote uh, a more famous book called Stoner. Yes, um, but, Stoner. Yeah, yeah. You know that book. I do it's know that book. It's a miserable book. But it it's was... like Jude the Obscure, but, yeah. you know, on in a minor key. It's the darker version of Jude the Obscure. But yeah. it was excavated, that book. I mean, it became it a sort of cult hit. Absolutely. Yeah, it became a cult hit. Uh, thanks to New York Review of Books, I think they chose to republish it. I think Brett Easton Ellis sort of plucked it. So, so Butcher's Crossing, that was my choice for something that needed to get plucked. I like it better than Stoner. Um, it's an anti-Western um, or a dark Western. Um, so sort of the same spirit as like The Searchers, that John Wayne movie. Um, but it is um, about a young man who goes west to murder Buffalo um, at just at the time when nobody needs murdered Buffalo anymore, like the market in Buffalo pelts has just collapsed. So it's the story of going West with a vision of manifest destiny and just end up pointlessly killing things. Um, and um, yeah, so, so that's my pick. Well, the good um, but thing, I have a science fiction. Yeah. The good thing about that is that Nicholas Cage will make the movie yeah. and then people will go back and read the book, presumably. Yeah. Exactly. But uh, what I asked you yeah. was whether yeah. you think that a book has been unjustifiably celebrated, a book that we oh. think is good, but I'm is so actually not. Yeah, ah. that is a great one. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been through Harry Potter, right? So, mm-hmm. um, uh, well, can you give me your nominee? And maybe that'll help me think of a nominee. Oh, look, I, it's I going hate... to be too controversial. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> there are books that, no doubt are fabulous, but I can't read. Does that yes. count? Yeah. Moby Dick. Um, I, oh, fighting uh, words. I know. Okay. Uh, yeah. That is I just the, how about can't. Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections? Can we agree on that one? Oh, no. Matt, I found that. Oh, no. You know, read, oh, no, it wasn't fabulous. Yeah. But you're quite right. It yeah. got overhyped. It got so hyped. But yeah. why? Is that just good PR on the part of the publisher? I wonder. There were all those stories about a bir- what a great bird watcher he is, and he sounds like you know he's a great bird watcher. He's an interesting thinker, but <laughs> that book was so grim to me. I just, I don't. I love naturalism. I'm a huge fan of a very rigidly defined novel that just takes you down into the dark. Like Jude the Obscure mm. is, you know, you know, is on my top list forever. But uh, what I found with the corrections was just I was being hemmed in for no good reason i just thought well that's not the only thing people do this is the only way human beings think it's just the only way jonathan franzen thinks Mm. is it that you don't like i mean you cannot like the way somebody thinks but admire the way they write about it 
Yes. Yes. I think I, what I would say, maybe this comes back to that question of the notion of what it means to come back to a book and find something different. I think that novels um, exist in space and in time. They unfold. And the way they unfold is by opening the possibility of other minds. So even if you get a novel with only a single voice like Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, in which you just have someone talking at you the whole time, the way that that um, voice works, creates a space, maybe through free and direct discourse, through using the third person, but it lets you think of this person living in a, in a world in which other people think differently from him. He's, he's poorly understood. He's aware that people sneer at him on the street. And, and we can think about that. Same thing with Middlemarch or with Jane Austen or with Ursula Le Guin. We can think about different ways to live in that world. Um, so that's what I think that's what I mean about um, not liking how someone thinks, even if their thinking is brilliant. I don't I don't think they have pulled off a novel if you can only, you know, if you've only got one vantage point. So somebody has texted I mean, there's a whole bunch of people saying, oh, I hated this book. Mm. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I They say I hated a little life. Oh, yeah. I too hated a little life. I mean, after a certain point, I, you just think, ah, oh, this is yeah. just the same thing again and again. And it's yeah. all nasty. Did yeah. you like a little life? I couldn't get into it enough to hate it. See, that's, I actually do put, I don't know, it sounds like you're committed to books, even when you, once you've started, even if you hate it. But I picked up a little life and it, it, it sent shivers down my spine. So I, I put it down. I did like, um, I love Donna Tartt's A Secret History. I always talk about this. See, I think I'm trying to turn this back into the positive again. Yeah. But, you know, I do like tiny community books in which you get to watch people, you know, sort of trapped in their small space. Yeah. The Art of Fielding was another novel like that that I did like. But yeah, no, A Little Life, I got nothing for you on it. Sorry. Mm, okay. Yeah. Somebody else has said yeah. The Road by Cormac McCarthy, which I would have to oh. dispute. That was fantastic. Yeah, I would too. That's absolutely a fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. But fantastic. why? Why do you? What? Yeah. Well, for me, it's. Um, I hated it the first time I read it, but that's often true. When I read a naturalist novel, I often hate it the first time I read it. Like I hate, um, you know, I hated Sister Carrie the first time I read it. I, um, you know, I hated um, uh, Frank Norris. I hated, um, you know, McTeague the first time I hated it. I read it because you because you feel so uncomfortable with this world but i think the road is great because it just forces you to stay there and it says well you know this this could be our world mate you know like it isn't don't be so sure that we're better off than this sister um, carrie was I, the the first and only book of theodore dreiser i ever read yeah. yes and yeah yeah i mean it's it's classic yeah. that you have to shift your thinking to his time because yeah. if you read you feel, it now, it's yeah. impossible to not think that it's a story of exploitation and ghastliness. Yeah. Yeah. But I think in his time, it was exploitation and ghastliness, too, because that's what he saw. You know, he saw this world of, you know, gender roles that let you go nowhere, class roles that let you go nowhere. Do you remember there's an amazing scene where somebody is thinking about stealing something and then he decides not to do it, but it's too late. The safe has closed behind him, Hurstwood, and that's it. His life is screwed on the basis of the, the little click the lock makes. I think he's all about those little clicks of the lock. And uh, yeah, I agree. It's a lot ghastlier from our century, <laughs> but I think it was 
pretty ghastly then, too. All the things you are saying um, indicate why you think literature can help the incarcerated. Yes. Yes, I, I was so glad to come after Jared Davidson. I really look forward to reading his book. And I was thinking so, so many resonances with the, the folks that I have met who are returning from the prison system. So a lot of the people I work with, in, in, the term of art in America is returning citizens. I don't know if what you guys use in New Zealand, but um, I was thinking about what it means to come out of those um, carceral spaces and to try to figure out the bigger world that in America, if you're working class, especially if you're of color, that bigger world can be kind of carceral as well. And so I absolutely think, um, you know, there's so many different ways that people need help to get back into the larger spaces after being inside those horrible small spaces. But um, but I do believe in literature as as one of the ways in. So how um, do you do it? You get you get a group. What do you do? Yeah, the the way is I inherited this model from a, a, a wonderful set of people who founded it back in the 1970s. So it has a slight 1970s hippy dippy Iron John vibe to it. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, exploring our male identity or our female identity together. That's kind of hanging in the background. But the fundamental structure is is really straightforward. It's 12 people who are either um, diverted from going to prison or are recently out of prison and a parole officer and a judge and me. So my role as the facilitator, I basically pick things for them to read. But in the discussion, the parole officer or the probation officer and the judge it, it participate on equal terms with the 12 um, returning citizens. And, you know, it's just a freewheeling discussion. And it is so great. Uh, you should sit in sometime, Kim. I mean, the, the, where the direction of those conversations go. You know, we start with a short James Baldwin story like Sonny's Blues. Or we read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde the last time I taught the class. <laughs> and the, 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 it was that was hard. You know, that was risky. Um, because it's, you know, it's all about being a pariah, right? Being a, you know, an evil outcast that the society knows to how to judge. But also and two in one. Two in one. Yeah, absolutely. You look good on one. You look good on the outside. Wait till you see the inside. Yeah. yeah. And, and and that discovery that we all have, you know, one of Stevenson's friends wrote to him, you know, I think my, I think my hide is worse than the one in your book. <laughs> um, and the, and, Seeing the judge, the, the the person who shifted most in the classroom that day was definitely the judge because he sort of started out with a pretty straightforward version of how you would first read Jekyll and Hyde, which is like, oh, it's too bad this nice, virtuous doctor had to go get addicted to this dangerous drug and become a bad, evil person. <laughs> and then, you know, at some point, you he started to hear the people in the classroom saying, well, you know, when I walk down the street, people look at me and they think I'm Mr. Hyde. You know, that's that's what I get back from them. Like, that's the kind of eyeballing I get. And, uh, you know, he started realizing that it's partly a story about what it means to judge someone by their surface. You know, but does it also um, does it also let them feel uh, as if somebody understands them, that somebody is seeing inside them? Yeah. I mean, I think it's important 
that they for it's a first name only space which i really liked you know occasionally the probation officer will mess up and call you know instead of judge olman instead of bob but it's basically a first name space and you know that you know we have this pretense of living in a classless society um and it's such a you know manifest lie on so many levels and you just have to work who hard ever to thinks create that who thinks it, you live in a classless society well you know, this is this famous poll that, you know, 85% of Americans think they're middle class. You know, <laughs> you can make $400,000 a year and report that you're middle class. It's just, you know, because we all grow, because that's the, that's the founding, you know, that's the founding line yeah. is that, you know, we're all created equal and endowed with certain inalienable yeah, rights. Yeah, but you've busy yeah. created so many inequalities since then it hardly counts, yeah. does it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, because there's race to begin with, and then there's imprisonment, too. Um, I was really thinking about enforced labor in, in the American because we have the 13th Amendment, which did free the slaves, but it also specified that the only time you could have forced labor was for prisoners. And so we had a whole, you know, the, the prison, the prison industrial complex kind of grew out of the 13th Amendment. So there are people who say in all seriousness that we need to repeal the 13th Amendment, not because of the freeing the slaves part, but because of the sanctioning exploitative labor part. Um, they're coming yeah. back at me about Moby Dick. Oh, yeah? Somebody People are backing saying, you up? Uh, no. Yeah. Well, yes. Oh, good. No, disagree. <laughs> Somebody says, good. I read Moby Dick while working at sea. I suggest you try that, said yeah. Sean. I find that yeah. rather passive-aggressive and unhelpful. <laughs> Somebody else says, I listened to Moby Dick on Libby in bed at night. That's audio book. Um, after, oh, when cooking. It was glorious when I got through it all. 100%. My experience as well. That I have read it and loved it. I have this um, 10th grade copy of it with all my underlinings, and I skipped like crazy. And when I listened to it, also on Libby, I absolutely loved it. Depends who's reading it. Nothing. Who was reading it? Oh, I can't remember. No. Maybe did your did the person who wrote in say? No. Oh, that's a good question. It does sometimes depend. Though, honestly, right, there's the famous all Juliet that stuff Stevenson. about knots and blubber and harpoons. Fantastic. That's all right Love if it. somebody's reading yeah. it to you is it definitely huh. yeah well he can write a sentence he can write he can make anything good somebody said about michael lewis i would read you know a thousand page book by michael lewis on the history of the stapler and <laughs> you know moby dick wrote you know a thousand pages on the whale and yes i don't regret a single sentence um, have you seen emo emoji dick that's an interesting version i haven't it's seen every, emoji dick no. every Every single sentence turned into a string of emojis. Ah, wow. It's kind of hard to read, but there are some great emojis. In I'll, I'll keep a lookout for it. Um, are you actually yeah. coming in person to New Zealand this time? I am. I'm Jolly very excited good. with my son. Yeah. Look forward to great. seeing you. Thank you. Thank you for uh, your time. Thank you very much, Kim. I Professor really enjoyed it. Professor John Plotz, he's coming to give the University of Otago's annual Dalziel Lecture on August the 25th. Um, next week, Anna Thomas is going to be hosting the program. She's going to be talking to When the Cat's Away, they're playing favourites. Uh, Richard von Sturmer uh, about his book Walking with Rocks, Dreaming with Rivers.